Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. High blood pressure or hypertension is often referred to as the silent killer because most people who have it don't have any symptoms and that silence can be deadly. Understanding hypertension tonight on call with the Prairie Doc, health information based on science built on trust. Good evening and welcome to the 21st season of On Call with the Prairie Doc, medical information based on science, built on trust. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger, your Prairie Doc host. Tonight we will be discussing hypertension. Joining us in the studio this evening on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings is Dr. Amy Cook from Sanford Health Brookings Clinic. And remotely via Zoom is Dr. Jose Hanau with Monument Health Rapid City Clinic. Welcome, Amy and Jose, thank you for joining us. Um, Dr. Cook, tell us a little bit about yourself, your family practice doctor. So you see hypertension, but a lot of other things, right? Yes, yeah. so I'm a family physician in Brookings, South Dakota mm -hmm. here at the Sanford Clinic, and uh, um, I do general care and see a lot of hypertension. Mm -hmm. And I also do obesity care too, which can mm -hmm. also be a player in hypertension. Sure, and I love that we have our, our general family practice doc, because really primary care is where probably the bulk of hypertension gets treated, but then we also have our specialist in hypertension and, and many things related to that disease. Dr. Hanau, can you tell us a little bit about nephrology as a specialty and why, why are you, a, why would I say you're a hypertension specialist? Yeah, you're right. Um, and nephrology is the hypertension specialist, not just because uh, the kidneys, but also because a lot of the hormones that the kidneys produce overall mm -hmm. is something that drives hypertension. Um, as family, as as you stated, the family medicine vocally initially sees most of the hypertension starting off. The nephrologist tends to see the resistant types of hypertension mm -hmm. uh, because the kidneys are the must masters of blood pressures at this time, uh, and that's why nephrologists overall get the bulk of the resistant hypertension. Uh, not the simple type of hypertension, but we do enjoy our simple and our very resistant hypertension mm -hmm. if needed. Yeah, if I know many nephrologists, I think the kidneys are the rulers of, rulers of everything, right? <laughs> um, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions for tonight's discussion about hypertension or high blood pressure. Viewers can contact us in three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items the winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So let's start with some basics, Amy and Jose. When we say hypertension or high blood pressure, 
Let's talk about what we mean. So, Amy, what's normal blood pressure and what do we consider high blood pressure? Let's start there. So when we talk about blood pressure, we always are commonly thinking about the top number and the bottom number. Mm -hmm. The top number we consider the systolic blood pressure and a normal blood pressure for the systolic would be 120. Mm -hmm. The lower number, the diastolic blood pressure number, normal would be 80. Mm -hmm. Now, blood pressure, when it's getting too high, over 140 of the top number and 90 over the bottom number is what we traditionally have followed. Mm -hmm. However, some of the recent data is starting to show that maybe we should be considering a blood pressure of over the top number 130 and the body number over um, 80. Yeah, I feel like that's we've had different iterations of those thresholds, and maybe maybe it is individualized to some degree, but definitely um, th those are the thresholds we've used. Um, Jose, why do we care about blood pressure? Why does it matter if someone has high blood pressure? Well, I think you started off in the beginning, right? It's the silent killer. Mm -hmm. High blood pressure affects every organ, not just the kidneys, not just the brain, not just the heart. High blood pressure at the end will lead to a significant amount of strokes, heart attacks, chronic kidney disease, and things that will end up leading to a worse quality of life and reduce the amount of time we have in this world. Mm -hmm. That's why blood pressure is so important that we manage it very correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, and this is about sort of long-term risk reduction. Usually we don't win this race in a day, you know, that's why we don't necessarily fix people's blood pressure in the emergency room per se, but this is about long-term management in most cases. Um, let's, let's move on a little bit. Are there some causes or some lifestyle factors that can affect blood pressure? I have a lot of patients, especially if we're initially finding they have high blood pressure. Doc, what can I do that isn't medications, right? So what do you tell your patients, Amy, who are asking you for that mm -hmm. kind of advice? So a lot of it does have to do with some risk factors that uh, are lifestyle measures. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the things are the things that we can do just to remain healthy. Mm -hmm. Getting good sleep, eating good nutrition, limiting salt intake, not smoking, mm -hmm. limiting alcohol intake, reducing stress, mm -hmm. getting good physical activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the same advice that we give for a lot of different health conditions applies to blood pressure. Do you have anything to add to that, Jose? No, I completely concur to that. Um, one of the things I would highly recommend on top of that and concur with our family medicine doc is, you know, what we eat is what we are. And if we eat healthy, our bodies are healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Um, let's talk about a little bit about how, how do I know if I have high blood pressure? Do, do patients typically come with symptoms if they have high blood pressure, Jose, or what have you found? It, it's funny how most, most of the patients don't even know they have it. Yeah. It, it's towards the time when they go see their primary care doc mm -hmm. and they're for a physical either because of their job or because of you know something changed with their insurance and they go to the primary care doc and they have no symptoms and then they find that, hey, the kidneys are hurt or the mm -hmm. heart's hurt or you know, the heart's not, uh, the brain is not doing as great as possible and we find out that their blood pressure has been elevated for a mm -hmm. while. And you feel it. Yeah, and I, I find that I tell, you know, I have some young people who see me and say, do I really need to come in once a year? And you know, even those people who maybe don't need cancer screening, 
and and that kind of thing every year I say it's worth coming in just to make sure we're checking your blood pressure once a year because otherwise we don't find it good um, one question that has come up um, is a good one are there any medicines that people take that cause high blood pressure Amy that you like over-the-counter meds or anything like that some medications over-the-counter can increase blood pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, most notably, we think about some of the decongestants like pseudoephedrine, mm -hmm. or some people might note it as pseudoephed. Mm -hmm. Those can increase blood pressure. And then also taking extra medications maybe of what you haven't mm -hmm. or shouldn't be taking too much of. Mm -hmm. I know as a nephrologist, he'll agree with me that taking too much of the pain medications like mm -hmm. ibuprofen, yeah. Advil, Aleve, naproxen right. may increase risk for the kidneys to cause blood yeah. pressure issues. Yeah, those are some of the first questions that I ask if we have someone with new high blood pressure. Have you been taking anything that you didn't tell us about that didn't make it in the chart? Anything that you'd add to that, Jose? No, I, I, I concurrently agree. You know, ibuprofen is the big, mm -hmm. big of blood pressure. It's one of the biggest causes of resistant hypertension. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that. So I, I can completely concur in that scenario. Yeah, good. Well, we have some caller questions coming in, so we'll get to those and we'll, we'll um, start with some of those. I have a caller um, who says, if you have low sodium and a regular blood pressure, but when you eat sodium, it raises your blood pressure, what you should you do? So I guess, Jose, let's start with how do you relate sodium or salt intake to blood pressure? Is there a correlation there? There, there is an absolutely great correlation there. Mm -hmm. um, the, the real reason why is because salt and water go hand to hand. Mm -hmm. The more salt we, we intake, the more water stays in our blood vessels. And that actually is one of the causes of high blood pressure because mm -hmm. more water and fluid blood technically stays into our blood vessels and that's what we're measuring when we're looking at blood pressure overall mm -hmm. um, if you take too much salt you're going to pee more and your and your kidneys are going to try to retain a significant amount of it and in the attempt try not to pee more and the blood pressure goes up mm -hmm. even yeah so that is a real effect that you're noticing what do we tell people about diet and sodium when we're talking about blood pressure mm -hmm. amy well, the American diet is very high in sodium, yeah. and we try to limit the sodium um, to about 2,300 milligrams uh, mm -hmm. max a day, which most Americans are getting a lot more of yeah. that. But then you can actually go a little bit too much on the other side. You do need some sodium right. in the diet, too. You can't go to zero. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, your body's not going to be happy with that either. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, when I talk to patients about low sodium diet, I always preface it by saying this is not easy actually to eat a low sodium diet in the US. As soon as you have fast food or canned food or frozen food, that kind of throws that sodium goal away. Do you have any other pieces of advice when it comes to sodium intake, Jose? My, my big advice is just don't add extra salt. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm a believer that, you know, if I, it's really hard for even me to hold on to the yeah. salt and I like, <laughs> just extra salt try to try to minimize it as much as you can but like we all said not enough salt can also be a problem so just try not to take put any salt on the food that you eat yeah good okay we have a call from Brookings who asks an interesting question I'm a triplet and have two other brothers I currently have to take blood pressure pills but my brothers do not why is that if we are genetically similar 
Um, so does high blood pressure tend to run in families? And what would you say mm -hmm. to this patient if they were in your office, Amy? Well, I think part of that would depend if they're identical versus yeah. fraternal or non-identical twins, because mm -hmm. It can be a family history, be a risk factor. Mm -hmm. But as we've kind of talked about too, some of the lifestyle things mm -hmm. could be a change too. Yeah. I don't know if the the person asking that is a female, mm -hmm. but maybe something if it's a female versus mm -hmm. um, two brothers, yeah. that might be an effect also. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, blood pressure is funny. I tell people mm -hmm. like because you know there are some people who you might not, you may or may not have it in your family history, and frankly, you may do everything right with your lifestyle and you still got it, right, Jose? I mean, you see those people. That, that's absolutely true. I see multiple people in different scenarios. Yeah. I have what patient who recently, you know, family's been so healthy and all of a sudden she has resistant hypertension. Mm -hmm. And I have a patient who has a family history of not just hypertension, but also glucocorticoid remedial hypertension, which is a subspecialty type of hypertension. Mm -hmm. And no one in the family ever had it. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it goes both ways, genetics and yeah. the, we do as, in, as a person also really changes our blood pressure is. Right, right. Sometimes these are just the cards that were dealt, even if you do everything that you can to, to minimize that. Um, we had a, a question, we touched on this a little bit, but what can you do to relieve your high blood pressure other than medicine, a caller from Rapid City? Can we reiterate some of those points mm -hmm. again, Amy? So the lifestyle measures that we can do is uh, limiting the salt, eating good healthy diet with the fruits, veggies, reducing stress, getting regular physical activity, getting good regular sleep, mm -hmm. making sure that we're limiting alcohol intake, not mm -hmm. smoking, are big key players in our lifestyle measures yeah. that we can do. I find that alcohol is something that my patients are surprised about when I ask about mm -hmm. alcohol use and blood pressure, but it, I absolutely have seen a big reduction in alcohol use result in much improvement in blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Jose's shaking his head like he agrees, so I feel good about that. <laughs> All right, um, I, we got an email question. I got hypertension during perimenopause and into menopause. Is there a link between menopause and hypertension? Jose, do you have any response to that? It, it's not, uh, someone who actually enjoys the uh, the women uh, medicine part of it, yes, menopause does have a link to hypertension. Um, specifically, how our arteries that we're measuring, how they actually dilate and constrict. Uh, when you hit menopause, you actually lose the ability to have good dilation and constriction. So women, you will see them uh, at an older age after menopause, that's one of the questions I like to ask mm. is, have you hit menopause earlier or did you hit it later mm -hmm. in life? The earlier you hit menopause, the higher chances of getting hypertension. Yeah, great, great question. Um, let's see, we have someone from Chamberlain um, states, they follow the recommendations of exercise, not overweight, try to eat healthy and low salt. Um, what else can he do to keep blood pressure in check? Amy, what would you say to that patient? I think some of those are, it gets to the, what we call non-modifiable risk yeah. factors where gender and age and mm -hmm. uh, the genetics and everything just, you can't change that. And unfortunately yeah. you just sometimes have to use the tools that the medical field can provide. Right. We applaud you for doing all these right mm -hmm. things, but sometimes we do just have to bite the bullet and use medication. 
Um, so we'll, we'll maybe get to medication questions a little bit more later in the show. Um, let's go to our first roll-in. Uh, it can be hard for people living in our more rural communities to get their blood pressure checked regularly. However, the self-measured blood pressure monitoring program could be a solution. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke to the South Dakota Department of Health about this program. In 2018, the South Dakota Department of Health and the CDC entered a five-year plan to implement preventive cardiovascular programs. One of those programs is the self-measured blood pressure monitoring program that is overseen by Rachel Sayer. Somebody is identified as having elevated blood pressure and they are able to check their blood pressures at home on their own outside the clinical setting usually a couple times a day for either a couple weeks to even months. Josh Ortman, director of the Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services in South Dakota, says most of the patients in the program were recommended because of their high blood pressure. And then the patients trained on how to properly take their home blood pressure, how to use the machine properly, and then the pharmacist will follow up with that patient over the course of weeks to months, whatever it really takes to get that patient to their, their blood pressure goal. Sayers says the program is very beneficial to many rural areas that don't have access to health care. In our bigger cities, we have lots of access to health care, but that's only two areas really within, within the state. And so a lot of our residents can have to travel 30 or 60 minutes even to reach a primary care provider. And it helps rural patients by limiting travel, but also makes sure they are staying healthy. Having a program like this, where you only have to go to the clinic or to the pharmacy just that one time, and then you're able to do a lot of that follow-up at home, and then communicate back and forth, either through phone or through your healthcare portal or things like that. You know, with limited healthcare providers in the state and, and um, just the healthcare provider shortage that we have, you know, when, when our programs are getting patients to their blood pressure goal, that eliminates the, the repeated appointments, the follow-up appointments to go in and check. Subsequent visits are reduced. Over a thousand people enrolled, and both Sarah and Ortman say it was a success. Without the ability to measure blood pressure to see on a consistent or, you know, a time frame, it's really difficult to know where a patient's blood pressure might be. But with consistent recording and trends and things, it's able to see uh, if that, that medication is working or if it's not working. And although the agreement ends this year, Sarah says they will try to keep the program around in South Dakota. We're going to do everything we can to try to continue this programming and continue to offer assistance to our different healthcare providers and community organizations that want to enroll in and develop programs like this. So. We are crossing our fingers that the next CDC funding allows us to continue that. Great discussion about monitoring blood pressure at home. I think this is something that probably we all have to implement in our, in our patient care, right? Jose, when you have patients do home blood pressure monitoring, what kind of instructions do you typically give them? Um, what challenges do you find with home blood pressure monitoring? 
So usually the challenges I, I, I first start off with is I, I like to use, look at the equipment first. Yeah. I like to by my, uh, with our staff to make sure the equipment is actually very reliable. Then between that, the big challenges I get is to really get a good look of what blood pressure is. It should be at least twice a day for two weeks. One of the times, I, one of the big challenges is the patient's doesn't like to do it twice a day. Mm. And that's okay, I understand, because I don't like to do things twice a day either. <laughs> but one of the instructions I like to tell them, and overall, is I like to make sure that they take their blood pressure at least an hour after they wake up, and uh, within an hour before going to bed, because in these states, your body are adapted physiological to change, meaning that your body, when you wake up, it's gonna be slightly elevated just because the hormone that wakes us up, the cortisol is going to make the blood pressure elevated. Mm -hmm. Then I usually tell them to, when they are going to check their blood pressure, you know, try to sit somewhere relaxed or somewhere, probably in the couch is the best place. Sit in the couch, put your arm, you know, laying flat and make sure that the cuff is nice and tight and see where it goes. And that's the best time to actually do it is an hour after you wake up and an hour before you go to bed because that's when our our blood pressure is going to be either the highest mm -hmm. or it's the average that we get to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it, I find that, you know, we tend to check people's blood pressure in our clinics and that's not really always the best place, right? I mean, the clinic's a stressful place. They haven't been sitting resting for five or 10 or more minutes in most cases. Um, so home blood pressure monitoring can really be helpful. I actually ask patients to bring in their cuff if we're working with home blood pressures so that we can make sure it's accurate. We might check the home, home cuff and a manual blood pressure in the clinic just to make sure that we're using good data. Because what, and what kind of, do you give people any advice before they buy or purchase a home blood pressure cuff? What, what should they look for? Well, it, one of the, the advice I give, which I'm kind of biased right away, I would say that. Um, is a Omeron's always a pretty good brand and I'm not selling the brand, but one of the, the blood pressure that they're, the blood pressure machine they're able to buy is the best blood pressure machine they can get because some patients can't afford it. And mm -hmm. I always say, Hey, listen, we'll just bring it into the office and we'll try to calibrate it mm -hmm. together. Um, if they can't afford it, but I usually always ask him to get one blood pressure machine that has a cuff that fits mm -hmm. about that fits about three inches past their actual arm. Mm -hmm. That way it's pretty good. Yeah, cuffs are not one size fits all for sure, so good. Um, we had a caller from Hills, Minnesota ask Amy, my 14-year-old grandson eats what might eat an entire jar of pickles if I let him. How can I talk to him about the risk of too much sodium? And what age do you need to start worrying about sodium intake more? Is this something that you do talk mm -hmm. up to your child and adolescent patients about? Yes, I think it is definitely hard to tell a 14-year-old that <laughs> you're gonna get high blood pressure from all that sodium. Um, but we are seeing it more commonly nowadays in our adolescents and children, um, especially as weight issues are becoming more prevalent in the youth too. Mm -hmm. So I think it is good an idea to start having those conversations, but mm -hmm. it also makes a difference if that 
14-year-old is very active and outside in the heat, playing mm -hmm. and running around and sweating, then yes, they absolutely need to get some of that sodium right. replacement. Sure. But if it's just a day in playing video games, mm -hmm. drinking Gatorade, and eating a jar of pickles, mm -hmm. then that would not be the best options and trying to go for more of the low sodium, healthier options would be best. Yeah, good. Um, let's see, we have an email asking about, seems a, like a lot or most older people get hypertension. What is the relationship between aging and hypertension? Jose, you wanna take that one? Oh, we might have lost our feed. Mm -hmm. Amy, why don't you start with the um, aging and hypertension? Yeah. What do we tend to see? So definitely age is a risk factor for hypertension. As we get older, our arteries don't get as compliant or able mm -hmm. to stretch and uh, um, adapt to our changes so they mm -hmm. get a little bit more stiffer causing mm -hmm. the higher blood pressure mm -hmm. and our hearts have been beating a lot longer and mm -hmm. having a lot more stress so sometimes the heart just has a little bit extra work that it has to do also that can contribute to the high blood pressure. Yeah, yeah, good. Jose, we were just talking about aging in relationship to hypertension. Um, do you, what do you, do you approach hypertension any differently in say the 85-year-old patient to the 45-year-old patient? I, I absolutely do. Yeah. The reason is because when you're 45, you have a long life ahead of you. Our goal is to make sure that we provide good blood pressure control, that the heart doesn't have any issues, the brain has no strokes. We don't have much data on 85-year-olds. Right. Um, we do state that the goal for them tends to be a little bit more lenient, uh, mm -hmm. less than 150 over 80. Reason why is because we've seen data that in patients older than the age of 75, whose blood pressure gets below 130 or 120, has more falls mm -hmm. and falls at this time tends to be more uh, detrimental. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a little, a little more challenging, um, maybe a little more conservative as people get older with that. Good, um, this is a, a great question. Uh, we had an email saying, what can I do for low blood pressure? So different problem than we're talking about, but let, let's tackle it. Um, this patient's had a systolic number in the 80s for over a year and seems to have symptoms from it. They can't take midadrine because of an eye condition. So it sounds like they've tried a drug. So how do you address low blood pressure? Um, we assume this patient's probably not on any blood pressure medicines um, or we probably would have stopped those. What, what tends to cause that and what can we do for it, Jose? It, it depends on, on, and that, that's the question, right? When I, when I see a patient with low blood pressure, I always try to find the underlying cause. It, that I recently noticed mm -hmm. here recently, liver disease causes low blood pressure mm -hmm. overall. Um, also, inability to hold on to salt. Mm -hmm. Some people have kidneys where they just can't hold on to salt. Uh, Midadrine is their first line of defense, as mm -hmm. we know. Uh, but our second line of defense for specific patients without severe heart failure is Floronef. It's mm -hmm. a medication that allows the kidneys to just hold on to the salt mm -hmm. and let the salt go into the blood vessels. And we just tell the patients to eat a lot of salt. And it actually works very well, mm -hmm. um, especially in those types of patients. 
Uh, but if I don't have any of those medications, I would say eat tons of salt. A pizza every night always helps. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, I'd say these patients, this is not the advice I'm usually mm -hmm. given to people, but I want you to eat salt um, and, and don't have any hesitation about it. Good. I've actually had some patients who've had low blood pressure from neuropathy from diabetes, and mm -hmm. they've actually had success with wearing a full compression mm -hmm. garment from the legs to yeah. the torso too. Yeah, it's a good advice. Just keeps blood from pooling in, in the legs where it's not helping your blood pressure get to your brain, right? Good. Um, let's talk a little bit, just while we're talking about medicines, let's just do an overview of some blood pressure medicines that people might commonly be on. Um, so Amy, I guess let's, let's, I'll pick one out of a hat. Let's mm -hmm. start, start with thiazide diuretics, commonly chlorothalidone or hydrochlorothiazide. So how do these work um, and what can be the problems with those medications? We use them a lot for high blood pressure. They're very good at treating mm -hmm. high blood pressure. Yeah, these medications typically we think of as a water pill and it helps to mm -hmm. uh, um, secrete some of that excess fluid from the kidneys and in that turn can also lose some of the potassium mm -hmm. from the blood too. So. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we have to monitor with these medications mm -hmm. because it can cause low potassium, mm -hmm. which symptoms of low potassium can be muscle cramps and uh, things that people don't like necessarily. Right. Um, but it is a good medication to help for a lot of people who do have some of that kind of swelling mm -hmm. or what we call edema in the legs and helps kind of pull out some of that fluid. Yeah, good. Um, Jose, I'm going to give you the next class, and of course that's going to be ACE inhibitors and ARB since you're a nephrologist. So can you give us a few examples of like the common names of these medicines and give us a little bit about how they work at the level of the kidney? Yeah, the, I'll start off with how they work in the level of kidneys okay. before I name off 50 medicines. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so the ACE inhibitors and ARB, they actually work on by inhibiting a specific hormone uh, called the renal angiotensis system. That system is what actually creates the blood pressure and allows us to absorb a lot of salt. Mm -hmm. And as you, this is the theme of the day, a lot of salt comes in with this renal angiotensis system. The medications that we give, as you stated, Diavon, or also called Valsartan, Lisinopril, mm -hmm. Fosinopril, uh, um, Erbisartan, any of these medications, they'll inhibit that specific hormone and allow the kidneys to actually regulate a artery that's past the kidney. It's called the efferent artery, mm -hmm. and allows the blood pressure to come down by inhibiting both the salt, um, the salt's ability to come in, and also by reducing the pressure in the kidney and allowing the blood pressure to go down. Um, those medications are very well tolerated. Mm -hmm. The only issue is with the lisinopril, or what we call the ACE inhibitors, is this common cough. Mm -hmm. That's one of the big things. And as our family medicine doc was able to provide was, this one will cause actually the potassium to go the opposite way, it'll go up. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to muscle weakness, fatigue, mm -hmm. and passing out mm -hmm. in rapid occasions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when we start these medicines, don't be surprised when you're provider says we need you to come back in a week or two to check the labs and make sure this is going okay with your electrolytes, right? 
Um, but those would be some of the co a couple of most common classes. I would say the other common class that we use is some calcium channel blockers, so things like amlodipine, nifedipine. How do those ones work, Amy? Those are going to act more so on the arteries and dilate the vessels mm -hmm. of the body to help relax mm -hmm. the vessels to allow more room for the, the blood to be to lower the blood pressure. Yeah, and any common side effects that we tend to see with those? Oftentimes, um, the most common side effect that I see with amlodipine is swelling. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, the thing that we try to treat in some people, mm -hmm. it might cause leg swelling. They're nice because you don't have to check labs, but that does happen in a, a percentage of people mm -hmm. for sure. Sometimes we, they can tolerate it and sometimes not. Um, there's a lot of other classes, but those are kind of the, the big three that we usually go to first in primary care. Anything that you would add to that discussion, Jose? I, I think that's the, those are the big three that we should, all primary care docs should mm -hmm. go to. Uh, the other ones, like the fancy alpha blockers, the minoxidil, the adactone, mm -hmm. um, you know, the guadalfinine, all those um, are when we hit a different realm of hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, which, and I think you should be seeing a, a hypertension specialist in any means. But you're right, the amlodipine is great, the mm -hmm. lisinopril and the chlorothaladone is fantastic yeah. overall. Good, good. Well. Let's go to our next roll-in. A healthy heart is important as we age, and an excellent way to keep a heart strong is with exercise. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower has more on how physical activity can help. Allison Berry is an associate professor from SDSU. She specializes in the science of exercising, which provides many benefits as we age. As we age, we're seeing that we have um, a stronger heart, which then causes less stress on our blood vessels. It also helps lower our cholesterol, our bad cholesterol, increases our good cholesterols. It also helps with mental health. It helps with weight control. And Barry says there is a choice of two guidelines people should follow for exercising. And the American College of Sports Medicine recommends that we engage in roughly 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise, or 75 of vigorous intensity. Following these guidelines can come in basic forms of physical activity, but it all helps your heart. We can walk, we can bike. Now, I don't know if anyone is interested in going to the lake, right? But like doing some kayaking, stuff like that are all going to be um, improving our cardiac systems. What's great about exercising is you can start anytime, but Barry says to start with something easy. Start walking. Right, you need to start somewhere. I would also recommend if you can find a friend that you like to work out with, group classes, friends, that accountability piece really helps as well. If walking isn't your cup of tea, Barry suggests finding something else you enjoy. Do you enjoy cycling? Do you like to go to a spin class? Um, there are beginner levels to everything, and I think a lot of people forget too that starting somewhere is better than nothing at all. She also mentions to try and incorporate many different exercises like aerobics, walking or running, for example, strength exercises, flexibility and balance. If I'm focusing on those four major factors that we discussed, that's going to make it for a better approach for me to have a better quality of life and really improve that independent living. Barry says all that matters is you're moving. And she says that's helping your heart more than doing nothing. 
It's going to help with, especially for those with hypertension, it can be beneficial for that. It also reduces cardiovascular disease, which is a leading cause of death in the United States right now. So there are a lot of different ways when we're thinking about this as exercises, it's so beneficial for heart health. great segment and I think really good advice about just start with anything right it doesn't have to be drastic you don't have to go from the couch to running a marathon what else do you tell people who are looking to start exercising Amy what advice do you give them I always try to find something that they enjoy to do a lot mm -hmm. of people equate exercising as going to the gym mm -hmm. and getting on the treadmill and just not enjoying it but yeah. It's anything that gets your body up and moving. So mm -hmm. finding something that you enjoy, even if it's incorporating the little extra activities throughout the day, like walking up the stairs instead of taking the elevator, mm -hmm. parking farther away from the in the parking lot from the grocery store, mm -hmm. and choosing some of those, uh, just moving your body more so than um, taking the you know the body mover type yeah. of things. I also find I try to separate the exercise. I mean, a lot of people approach exercise because they want to lose weight is really common. But honestly, I try to tell people exercise is good whether you lose weight or not, right? We can mm -hmm. help some of these other things. We can Your blood pressure might be better. You'll probably feel better um, in general. And some of these other metabolic things can, even if your weight doesn't move or doesn't move much, exercise is still really good, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you? Do you have an exercise spiel in your nephrology clinic for your high blood pressure patients, Jose? I absolutely do. My first, I always say, you know, go back to Newton's law. <laughs> body in motion stays in motion. A body that stays at rest won't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the big things I always tell them is patients come with me with chronic kidney disease because weight has actually caused them to get chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. I always tell them that every pound that we go down from exercise it reduces the chances of your kidneys going to dialysis mm -hmm. by 7%. That's a huge number. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, a lot of benefit comes from losing 10 pounds. You don't have to lose 50 or 100 pounds to have some, some of that success, right? Um, we had a great follow-up question. We were just talking about ACE inhibitors when we were talking about blood pressure medications. So Jose, we had an email follow-up question. How do ACE inhibitors protect the kidneys of diabetics? So I'm gonna presume this person's been told that by you know, someone like us. What do you tell your patients? I, I tell the patients that the reason why diabetes actually damages the kidneys is because inside the kidneys, we have these very small things called the glomerulus. And the glomerulus gets so much pressure from the diabetes, from the glucose, and what the ACE inhibitors do is it makes it relax mm -hmm. and it gives it time to not get the diabetes to attack all the sugar onto it. It makes it relax and gives the kidneys time to relax overall. They're very protective by that mechanism and that mechanism only. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have a lot of patients with diabetes on these medications, not even all of them who have high blood pressure, right? We might actually start an ACE inhibitor or an ARB in the absence of hypertension for that reason. Yeah? Uh, 
We have to say Absolutely. thank you to the caller because I, I can see through Zoom Jose's li eyes light up when he gets to talk about a glomerulus. So <laughs> that's a great question. Thank you. Um, we had a caller from Brookings who asked, do electrolyte drinks bring your sodium levels up and then can they negatively affect your blood pressure? Amy, what, that's maybe a broad question because there's a lot of electrolyte drinks out mm -hmm. there, but do they tend to be high in sodium? Some of them can, especially yeah. the sports drinks that uh, are meant to replenish the athlete who's sweating or mm -hmm. uh, um, in working out in hot environments. Mm -hmm. So they're important to replenish some of those lost mm -hmm. electrolytes. But for somebody who is not active, mm -hmm. um, there's lots of sugars and extra extra electrolytes that mm -hmm. the body doesn't necessarily need. Right. And it just puts more work on the kidneys then. Yeah, right. So just you got to look at the labels probably just to get a sense of how much sodium. I don't want pe our viewers to think sodium is bad. Mm -hmm. We all need sodium, right? I recently actually had a patient who was really trying to drink lots and lots of water for you know whatever reason. And she came in and she felt pretty crummy and it's because mm -hmm. her sodium was too low because she was drinking all water and not getting enough salt. So um, we, need, we need sodium, uh, but too much can be bad. So good. Um, let's see, oh, this is a good one for Jose because this is out of my league. A caller from Yankton asks, there are PubMed articles talking about taking NRF2 or nuclear factor erythroid 2 synergizers for conditions such as high blood pressure. Um, have we heard much about those benefiting people with high blood pressure? Are you, are you familiar with this, Jose? So this was the big thing in Boston. Okay. <laughs> we were having this discussion and, and, and I'll reference this back to one of my mentors, Dr. Glenn Kershaw. Um, who actually created a system in an approach to try to uh, do an intergomerular vasodilatation on and all. What I would say about these synergistic activates, uh, activators is that at this time we don't have significant data, but I've seen some positive data specifically in transplanted kidneys, mm. not in the general population. So what I, I would absolutely say is, um, you know, if it comes to a resistant hypertension and I can't control it with medications, then I would go down that line. Mm -hmm. But if we can control it with medications, I wouldn't go down that line yet as the data hasn't fully been, been fully vetted uh, by the American Society of Nephrology yet. Got it, so maybe more to come on those things. Great. We had a caller from Sioux Falls who asked, how do beta blockers help with blood pressure and what kind of problems can they cause? Can, let's talk about another class. Yeah, so, so uh, the beta blockers mm -hmm. help to reduce the heart rate of the heart and mm -hmm. then in turn provide less pressure to the blood pressure going mm -hmm. up. Um, we don't typically use that anymore for our first line treatment mm -hmm. of straightforward high blood pressure, but it is important for people with coronary artery disease or somebody who's had a prior mm -hmm. heart attack then it does show that it has benefits for the people with heart disease. Yeah, for sure. I find that I, ha I still have a few patients who were started on a beta blocker for high blood pressure, you know, 15 or 20 years ago before our guidelines probably changed. And we might not rock that boat, but not our first choice for that. We use it for a lot of other conditions though, um, especially to do with the heart. Um, a follow-up question from that same same viewer was, what are more appropriate blood pressure medicines for someone with Graves' disease? So we do use beta blockers in Graves' disease, right, Dr. Hanau? Go ahead. Propanolol yep. is a phenomenal mm -hmm. um, for Graves' disease overall. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would be very 
very adamant with a combination of propanolol and ACE and ARB inhibitors. Mm -hmm. um, combination overall will provide the best benefit. Um, there is a, a secondary line medication, it's called spironolactone, mm -hmm. which could technically reduce the potentiation of aldosterone, famous term, aldosterone, that causes a lot of sodium to be absorbed. Mm -hmm. But in Graves' disease, they're absorbing a lot of salt and have a lot of adrogenic state. Mm -hmm. So propanolol reduces that, and the ACE and ARBs reduces also the salt reabsorption. So I would be a proponent of those two meds. Yeah, great. And Graves' disease, of course, I should have said, is a state in which people have too much thyroid hormone circulating and autoimmune disease and can affect heart rate, blood pressure, all of those things. So people can be pretty sick with that. Um, okay, we had a call. I'm gonna give this to you too, Jose, because we were talking about this a little, little bit on the break. Does it matter what time of day you take your blood pressure medication? And I guess along with that question, let's talk a little bit about overnight blood pressures and the data that we have in regards to that. Yeah, actually there is really good data on when you take your blood pressure medications. And that data is based upon what the medication is. We have medications that work for 36 hours and that does not change. We have medications that only work for eight hours, and that's important. Um, there's a class of medications called the calcium channel blockers who are notoriously known to work better at night. You give these patients the medication amlodipine at night, so when they go to sleep, their blood pressure drops more, and the better the blood pressure drops without causing any symptoms, overall protects the hearts and the kidney and the, especially the, the, the brain because the more the higher your blood pressure is while you're sleeping, the higher chances of stroke. So the, the overall answer is it depends on which medication you take. Some are very suitable for night and some are suitable for any time of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and the water pills are always suitable for the beginning of the day. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's challenging, you know, if you have a patient who is not really used to taking medicines at two different times a day, we kind of just have to do the best if, if, if one time a day is gonna work best for that patient. But if we have the choice, sometimes it might make a difference. So a good thing to talk to your, to your doctor about, great. Um, Amy, we had a, a follow-up question. What class of medication is Losartan? Since we've been talking about some medication classes, <laughs> can you answer that for yeah, us? Yeah, so that's part of the, ARBs mm -hmm. or the angiotensin receptor blockers. Yeah, so the, the kidney protecting medications that Jose was talking about, um, kind of a cousin of the ACE inhibitors, but they work on a different, um, a different protein there. Um, let's see, we had an, an email question, what diet is recommended to those looking to lower their blood pressure? Is there a specific diet, Jose, that might help people with their blood pressure? I, I'm going to be uh, honest, and there's really good data from the New England Journal of Medicine for Hypertension. Uh, people who are more in the vegan type of diet mm -hmm. have a better overall blood pressure control versus the people who are in the carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. So I would be very profound to say that if you eat a more vegan type of diet, your blood pressure is almost invariably better controlled versus someone who's eating a big salty steak every night. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend always lean towards more of your vegetables and your fruits versus your overall steaks, which mm -hmm. too bad because steaks are yummy. Yeah, <laughs> I know, it's a hard sell in where we live especially. Um, 
Yeah, good. So, you know, we've talked about low sodium. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a Mediterranean diet, which is probably not co totally vegan, but maybe more a lot closer than, than that. And that's got good data in, in the cardiovascular literature as well, but um, challenging. Let's see um, if we got any last questions. Let's talk about um, side effects of high blood pressure drugs. So, Amy, what what should people talk, call their doctor about if they're worried about having, let's say, just too much treatment of their blood mm -hmm. pressure? What would be a common side effect of your blood pressure getting too low because of your drugs? So, if you're going too low for low blood pressure, oftentimes you're starting to feel fatigued, mm -hmm. lightheaded, dizzy, especially with those position changes. Yeah. And for sure, if you're having any passing out episodes, that's mm -hmm. really not what we want to do. Yeah. But mainly it's the feeling lightheaded, dizzy, fatigue. Yeah, yeah. Anything you would add, Jose? We got about 30 seconds left here. Yeah. And, and one of the big things is in the elderly that I always mm -hmm. say is that after you eat a meal, if you pass out, that's because we're over medicating you. Yeah. That's one of the things we always like to say. Yeah, yeah, and I usually say if you're consistently having those few seconds of dizziness when you first stand up, I want to hear about that because we don't want that to go too far and actually cause a fall and, and that kind of thing. So good, we can't overtreat blood pressure. Sometimes we screw up and we need to know about it. So excellent questions. The winner of our prize tonight is James from Yankton. Thank you, James, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Miss an episode or looking for a specific topic? Head to our YouTube channel or website, prairiedoc.org today to access all on call with the Prairie Doc episodes. And make sure to join us most Thursdays on SDPB and Facebook for new shows. Many people find themselves being told, your blood pressure is pretty high today. You might be at the dentist's office for a filling, in the emergency room getting stitches after an avocado mishap, or maybe you're at your annual physical appointment. If you've never had high blood pressure, you might be surprised at this news. Sometimes my own patients will call my office after such an event. Doc, should I be put on blood pressure medication? When we get these calls, our typical answer is, maybe, but maybe not. Blood pressure is a dynamic measurement affected by many things, including adrenaline and other stress hormones. If you measure the blood pressure of healthy people who are in stressful circumstances, you will often find it to be high. This can certainly be true in healthcare settings. Have you ever felt stressed or anxious when you were hurt in the ER or sitting in a dental chair? I advise these patients to come into our office and check their blood pressure under less duress. Oftentimes, it will be normal and reassuring. Sometimes, though, the stressful circumstance is our primary care office, the very place we try to screen for high blood pressure. Some patients have elevated blood pressure in their primary care provider's office, but not at home or elsewhere. This is often referred to as white coat hypertension. The only way to know for sure, though, is to check blood pressure at home or outside the clinic visit. If a hypothetical adult patient who is feeling well and has never before had hypertension comes to their annual physical and has a blood pressure of 155 over 90, the first step is to repeat it after a period of five to 10 minutes of quiet rest. If it is still elevated, we will arrange to check resting blood pressure at home or in a series of lower stakes visits to the clinic with a nurse. 
the diagnosis of hypertension and decisions about treatment should be made if the average of those resting blood pressures are above the threshold for recommended treatment. Of course, if a patient truly does have hypertension, we want to initiate lifestyle interventions and possibly medication to reduce the long-term risk of poor health outcomes. But when it comes to high blood pressure, it is rarely an emergency, and often collecting more data is better. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Cook and Dr. Hanau for volunteering their time to help us learn more about hypertension or high blood pressure. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. And until next time, stay healthy out there, people. medical schools acceptance rate is just over 6%. What does it take to get into these competitive programs and then graduate? The journey to become a doctor next time on call with the Prairie Doc. Having access to trusted public health information is essential for thriving communities across South Dakota. As Americans, we all value the ability to make appropriate decisions about our health care. To do so, we need access to quality information from reliable sources. The Prairie Docs and their guests have been providing such information based on science and built on trust for the past 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. As we move into our 21st season of Prairie Doc programming, board members, doctors, and volunteers continue to follow our mission to enhance health and diminish suffering by communicating useful information based on honest science and provided in a respectful and compassionate manner. Your donation to support Prairie Doc programming makes an extraordinary difference in fulfilling this important mission. Your generosity helps strengthen the Healing Words Foundation and expand the reach of trusted healthcare providers to share important health information that empowers individuals and families to make the decisions that are right for them. Donations from individuals comprise 50% of the funds generated by the Foundation to support Prairie Dog programming, and gifts of any size serve to enhance its impact. Please consider a personal or corporate gift today just go to prairiedoc.org to donate. Should you prefer not to donate online, please reach out to us by email and Foundation staff will follow up with you about a pledge. 
Many thanks for supporting the mission of the Healing Words Foundation and Prairie Dog Programming in South Dakota and throughout our region. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Dock has been provided by... At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.